No She Didn't is a new podcast produced by a husband and wife team. They focus on the forensic psychology aspect of true crime and criminal investigations. Each week a new podcast will be released on Fridays discussing a true crime case and how forensic psychology played a role in the investigation. Today's episode of No She Didn't will be covering the case of Eileen Warnos. Eileen is known to many as America's first female serial killer. Her story is intertwined with childhood sexual abuse, incest, physical abuse, abandonment, and loss of her identity, which ultimately leads to prostitution, robbery, and murder. Hey, Ty? Yeah. What are you doing? Nothing. What the hell are you doing? Nothing. I'm sitting here in jail. Yeah, it's what I heard. There's been officials up at my parents' house asking some questions. Uh-oh. And I'm getting scared. I think what happened, there was pictures in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it was a case of mistaken identity. Look, i got to ask you something. Is there anybody in that room? No, just me. What? What? Is there anybody in your room? No. I don't know whether I should keep on living or if I should... No, Ty, listen. What? You go ahead and let them know what you need to know. If you want to know or anything, you're innocent. Listen, if I have to confess, I will. Hey, friends, this is Alicia. And Jamie. From the No She Didn't podcast. We're going to go right ahead and get on into the story because we have a lot to cover. In 1989, the state of Florida realized that they had a murderer on their hands. Over seven men had been found shot to death. Their cars stolen and abandoned, and their personal belongings were missing. Some of the victims were found nude. One wore only a ball cap, while some were fully clothed. Now, Florida officials knew that they had a problem, but they certainly weren't expecting their murderer to be a woman a 5-foot-4-inch, 137-pound woman. This woman had a story, however, that would make even the most seasoned officer cringe. Eileen's story is not an easy story to follow. She had so many things stacked against her before she was even born. Eileen Carol Pittman Warnos, otherwise known as Lee, was known to the public as America's first female serial killer. She was also called the Damsel of Death and had been dubbed by the media an avenging angel. Eileen was born on leap year, February 29, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan. Eileen was born to parents that were teenagers. Her parents were married when Diane was 14 and her father was 16. When Eileen was born, they had already had a son named Keith. We want to introduce you to Eileen's family. Leo Briggs, Dale Pittman, was Eileen's father. She never got a chance to meet her dad because he was in prison when she was born for the kidnapping, rape, and sodomy of a seven-year-old girl. He had been in and out of mental hospitals for years, and her father's psychopathic ways began early in his life in which he was known to tie two cat's tails together, 
throw them over a clothesline, and watch them fight to attempt to free themselves. He was raised by loving grandparents who spoiled him, and when his grandfather passed away due to throat cancer, his grandmother spoiled him even more, but only to be repaid through beatings from her grandson. Leo was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was labeled a sociopath. Now, stories differ as to whether he actually hung himself while he was in prison or was strangled in the year 1976. Diane Warnos is Eileen's mother. She was 14 years old when she married Leo Pittman. She was 16 years old when she delivered Eileen's brother, Keith. Diane was rumored to have been sexually abused by her father. And some will state that Eileen is actually Diane's child by her father. Diane filed for divorce from Leo two months before Eileen was born because he had already been arrested at that time. Diane goes on to tell us that Eileen was born via frank breech delivery, which means bottoms first. Diane stated in an interview that Eileen may have had possible brain damage from the difficult birth, and that may be why she turned out the way that she did. Diane did abandon Keith and Eileen before Eileen was even five years old, stating that the children were crying and unhappy babies. The interesting part of the story is that Diane did go on to have more children. Immediately thereafter, actually. She met up with a man by the name of Dave Tooley, and together they had Kathy, who that was born in 1957, and Dave Jr. that was born in 1960. Diane abandoned Keith and Eileen when they were only four and six years old. She gave them to her parents. She never came back to see her children, except for one time. We'll tell you more about that later. Now, Eileen's brother, Keith Warnos, was her full biological brother and was older by just a few years. Now, they say he was a rough-and-tumble youth, and like Eileen, he started drinking and smoking at an early age. He liked to fight a lot, but was very protective of his sister. But he also fought with his sister. He also had consensual sexual relations with Eileen. When he got older, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and he died at age 21 from that cancer. In addition to Keith Warnos, Eileen had two half-siblings on her mom's side. Kathy Lynn Tooley Bishop currently lives in Douglas, Texas, and she's married to Martin Bishop. Another sibling, Dave Alvin Tooley Jr., was born in 1960, and he lives in Texas as well. It's important to know that Diane moved to Texas shortly after giving Eileen and Keith up for adoption. Eileen's grandparents are Lori and Britta Warnos, and they adopted Eileen and her brother Keith when Eileen was four and Keith was six. 
Both parents were heavy alcoholics. Now, Lori Jacob Wernos, her grandfather, was an engineer at Ford Chrysler by trade and was rumored to possibly be Eileen's actual birth father through incest. He physically beat and sexually assaulted Eileen and would make her strip naked before beating her with a razor strap. She is, he's also the potential father of Eileen's baby and he committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning in 76. Eileen Britta Warnos loved Eileen, but she would not intervene when Laurie was disciplining Eileen or Keith. She was a long-term alcoholic, as we mentioned earlier, and she died from liver failure. Diane later said in an interview that she believed that her father, Laurie, actually killed her mother because he wanted Eileen and Keith out of the house, and the grandmother did not want to force them to leave because they had nowhere to go. On the night that Britta died, she was suffering convulsions. And this is what led people to believe that Laurie had possibly poisoned her. Now, other family members that Eileen had were Barry Warnos, who was actually her uncle, but she grew up believing was her older brother. Uh, he actually testified against her at her trial and said that Eileen wasn't abused as a child, quote, just a normal upbringing for all of us, end quote, and said his father was a stern disciplinarian. Now, Barry had left to go into the military when Eileen was nine, so he didn't know what happened after that. Eileen's aunt, Lori Christine Grody, was a significant character in Eileen's childhood. She spent a lot of time hanging out and socializing with Eileen. They were around the same age. They hung out in the same crowds. Later on in life, Lori behaved as if she did not even know her sister, did not love her sister nor care for her sister, as it is reported that she told the press, and Eileen, that when it was time to pull the switch for her electrocution, that she wishes that she could be the one to do it. Some of the significant stories of Eileen's childhood involved an episode when she was just six years old. She was heavily burned while playing with fire. Her sister Lori and her brother Keith were all outside and they were playing with lighter fluid. Somehow, Eileen managed to catch fire. This did create significant injuries for Eileen. It left substantial facial scars that were mostly around her forehead and they did require long-term medical care. Around the age of 10, Eileen was in trouble for shoplifting. Also around that time is when she found out that her parents were actually her grandparents. This news devastated her and Keith because the family that they thought that they had was not at all what they had. By the age of 11, Eileen and Keith were both sexually active. Eileen 
performed sex acts for the local boys in exchange for change, cigarettes, drugs, and even food. It is important to note that Eileen and Keith were also having sexual relations with each other. Both claimed that this was consensual. Keith is no longer alive for us to be able to question if this actually did happen. But it was widely reported in their group of friends and in their town that they were both sexually active with each other. Eileen went on to quit high school in the ninth grade. She had been outside. She was hanging out with a friend outside of the school building. They were about to smoke a joint. The principal came outside, caught them, told them to both go inside the building to his office. Eileen refused. And she said, I quit. I'm not going into your office, and you're not going to tell me what to do. At that point, the principal said, fine, leave the school grounds and don't come back ever again. If you do, you'll be in serious trouble. Not long after, Eileen became pregnant at the age of 13. We do not know who's baby this is who is the father of the baby many suggest that it could be her grandfather many suggest that it could be her brother many also make mention of a local pedophile that lived in the town Eileen gave birth to her son in 1970 at an unwed mother's home at the age of 14. She had to give him up for adoption and she never even got to hold him. Her best friend claims the baby was a result of a rape by an older local pedophile. That best friend named Don Botkins reiterated while speaking with a journalist named Nick, the guy that raped her was like 60 years old and he loved all the kids, she said. Eileen was drunk He'd take advantage of her and shit like that. So that's who she got pregnant by. Sadly, after Eileen's grandmother's death, Eileen and Keith were kicked out of their home. Keith went on to live with a friend while Eileen wandered into the woods to find safety. Eileen turned to prostitution to make ends meet. Eileen decided to leave her local town and started hitchhiking and prostituting along the interstates. She traveled around for five years and wound up in Colorado. This is where she would begin her string of crimes that would ultimately lead to her end. Now that we've introduced you to Eileen's family and given you a pretty good look at her childhood history, now we're going to delve into her criminal history. I have to say, Jamie, there really is a whole lot of history here. Uh, there is. She was involved in a lot of things, not just prostitution. And I'm not 100% sure that everybody even knows about that. 
Yeah. As I, you know, when we were doing research for this, um, I tried to establish a timeline for her. You know, I thought maybe every couple of years or so she would have been in trouble for something, but it appeared that it was back to back to back crimes. She was constantly being arrested for something. Yeah, I, I can see that uh, along with the prostitution, a lot of things for her was just easy money. What's the easiest way to get a hold of money? And it seemed robbery was one of those easy ways to get money. Absolutely. Well, we're going to go ahead and start to tell you um, a little bit about her crime history, and that way you can see what did lead up uh, to trouble for her in the very end. Um, She had a history of using aliases. Whenever she would get pulled over, she would use, you know, a fictitious name. Sometimes she would even use her sister's name. And so, for a while, her crimes didn't catch up to her because she would use different people's names. Yeah, so the police weren't even sure who she was. Right. In 1974, she was pulled over in Colorado. She was arrested for a DUI, and she also was shooting a twenty-two pistol out of a moving car. Um, she gave the police officers the name Sandra Kretsch, so the police didn't have anything to go on, so that's the name they wrote down on the citation um, and they told her to appear in court, which she did not. So she was charged with a failure to appear for skipping town. And ultimately that would be what the police would use to get her into their station. When the murders were occurring, that would be the charge that they brought her in on. So, all right. So, One thing that I found really, really, I I thought it was going to be a great turn for her. And I don't know what happened and where it went wrong. But um, in 1976, she did meet a man. And this man, his name was Louis Fell. Um, Louis was 69 years old, though. Um, So he was quite a bit older than her. Well, they fell in love decided to get married. So, they got married. They, the gentleman, he had lots of money. From what I understand, he was a coal guy. Yeah, he was the president of the coal company, and he was actually a retiree that had, you know, moved to Florida to live off his retirement. Yeah, I think they met at a yacht club, is what I understood. So, um, he was instantly taken by her. She was quite beautiful back then. Um, the drugs and prostitution hadn't started showing on her face yet. Um, but anyway, so they were married. They got married. It was in the social pages of the local paper. Um, their marriage lasted all of 60 days. Um, at 60 days, I guess Eileen had moneyed him so much that he was at a point he was refusing to give her any more money. Yeah, that's that's the same research that I found. Uh, she apparently had been dogging him for cash, and she needed money to go here and needed money to go there. And when he refused to give it to her, she took his walking stick away from him and started beating him with it. For the love of Pete, I cannot imagine. So that would that would definitely be a red flag for sure. Um, and that goes to speak again. You know, uh, one of the things that's volatile about her was her anger. She had serious anger issues, which we can all tell you would have serious anger issues living the life that she had lived. 
So she was very angry. And this anger would continue to be bottled up inside of her. And it would come out at times. But ultimately, later on when the murders happened, that's when she really exploded. So um, in 1978, after the divorce was over, she actually wound up, you know, having her heart broken by some guy. And she shot herself in the stomach. So she was 21 when that happened. And so... The history that I read was that her brother had died around that same time. Yes, from the esophageal cancer. Yes, and so she was really just heartbroken because he was her person. You know, that was who she would turn to. Um, Even though they didn't get to see each other a whole lot, um, in the very end, she did get to go to the hospital to be with him and to see him. And she said that the place on his neck was swelled up like the size of an orange. And so he was uh, not pursuing treatment because the doctors were wanting to use him as a test subject for a future treatment, but he didn't make it. He didn't last long enough to have that type of treatment. And so I think she was just heartbroken. And so she tried to commit suicide by shooting herself in the stomach. Yeah, in 1981, she was arrested for robbing a convenience store for $35 and two packs of cigarettes. And I believe she served one year in the Florida prison for that charge. Yeah, she, um, then in 1982, she was arrested for writing cold checks. Um, You know, she had a problem with doing that. It, It appears that that went on for a couple of years. Um, so, which... You know, as as you'll see, her crimes progress. So, 1985, she was actually uh, the suspect in a theft of a revolver um, and ammunition. And in that actual incident with the police, she used her aunt's name, Lori. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so, um, she did that. You know, she um, later went on. She got arrested again. In 86, for another car theft and obstruction of justice, because she used her aunt's name again, and police actually found a 38 caliber gun with ammunition in the car. So, she's really on a roll. She's really on a roll. Definitely, she's went from, well, she committed robbery, writing cold checks, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that she also stole the gun and the ammunition and stole the car so that anything she may have used in the robbery couldn't be traced back to her. That's clearly... So she was thinking, you know, she was using her, her mind for sure, which will, you know, go toward the forensic analysis, you know, that we have on her in a little bit. Um She went on that same year, she got a ticket for speeding, and she used a new alias, and that name is Susan Blahovic. Found no reference of that being an actual person. Uh, How she came up with that name, I have absolutely no idea. Um, So, and I've done extensive research on her and read uh, several books on her, even a book called uh, Dear Dawn. Um, It's actually a collection of letters where she wrote to her best friend Dawn. Um, and just, it's 10 years worth of letters. And so she really does give a whole lot of information in this book. And we've brought a lot of that information into this podcast. So um, she went on later on in 1986. 
Um, she had dated only men up until this point. Um, she did have a, a female lover for a little while, and her name was Tony. Um, again, there's not a lot of information on Tony other than Tony was abusive to Eileen. Um, she also took Eileen's money. Um, when there wasn't any more money, Tony was gone. So, um, while she was at a, a gay bar in Daytona, she actually met the woman that she later refers to as the love of her life, and that is Tyra Moore. So, um, she began this love affair with her. It was someone that she was very infatuated with. Uh, she said she fell head over heels for her uh, from the beginning, and so she wanted a relationship. So, I'm pretty sure that Tyra Moore was 28 years old at that time. And they had both been arrested in Miami and charged with Grand Theft Auto because they were both in the car. Uh, of course, Eileen, being violent, resisted arrest and was charged with obstruction of justice because she provided her aunt's name again instead of her own. Yeah, and... You know, the, their their life of crime certainly just kept rolling because next year in 87, both Eileen and Ty were arrested for assault and battery with a beer bottle. Um, in 88, um, she resorted to using the new alias, and that name is Cami Marsh Green. Um, this person, Cami Marsh Green, actually accused a bus driver of assault because he pushed her off a bus uh, following a confrontation that they had had. She was also accused of vandalizing an apartment, um, tearing up the carpet, painting the walls dark brown without permission from the landlord. And Jamie, you raised a really good point about that. So what would be the reason that someone would tear up the carpet and paint the walls such a dark color? Uh, that just, it stuck out to me because we have watched so many you know, crime shows and if somebody tears up the carpet, it's usually because it's stained and those stains obviously are usually from blood and if you're going to paint walls dark brown it's because blood will show through practically every other color yeah and you know I, I didn't find any history you know where they had previously murdered anyone um maybe an accident occurred maybe they had a john over to the hotel or the apartment that they were at and Something went wrong. Um, you know, who knows what these two were doing? You know, maybe, you know, one was bringing them in under prostitution, um, and then, you know, the other was robbing them. You know, we, we don't know. But that was just really interesting. And, you know, from that uh, forensic psychology aspect of it, you, you catch these things and you notice these things and you go, why did they do that? What was the purpose of doing that? Because a typical person wouldn't just rip up the carpet you know, and paint the walls dark brown, you know, so that's, that's not typical, you know, so, um, anyway, they later on went on, and Eileen actually got into a altercation at a local grocery store, um, over lottery tickets. Uh, for 60 days, she continued to call this grocery store and threaten them for 60 days, so, you know, she's definitely evolving. Yeah, it's almost like everything she does rolls back around to how can I get easy money. Yeah, and, and you know, unfortunately, the life that she was living, she goes on to explain in her book that Tyra was just 
bleeding her dry. Like, there was never enough money. Ty was constantly sending her out to hook more. Um, Eileen had a steady group of men that she did provide services to. Um, she said that she did lose a large amount of her clientele when Desert Storm happened. So, because, um, you know, she, whenever Desert, Desert Storm happened, you know, most of her clientele, you know, was gone. So, Ty encouraged her to go back out onto the interstates and start finding new customers. Because the regulars, you know, had decreased so much. Unfortunately, in November of 1989, Eileen met Richard Mallory. Richard Mallory is the first victim of Eileen Warnos. Richard Mallory was found in the woods under a piece of carpet. Later on, we find out from Eileen that when she killed Mallory, she took him out into the woods and she actually found that piece of carpet and wrapped him up in it. it so it wasn't something, a situation where she was prepared and she brought a piece of carpet. So she actually said that there were all kinds of things littering the highways where she was tricking at. Um, she actually even told a story about finding a headless and limbless torso along the side of the road and she went out and she tried to flag down state troopers and other truck drivers and no one would stop oh goodness and that's i mean we ourselves have been in the car and been riding down the interstate and you see all sorts of things on the side of the road that just make you wonder what happened because it always kind of tugs at my heart a little bit when you see clothing and shoes on the side of the highway and you just hope that it flew off the top of somebody's laundry basket that was in the back of the truck and didn't actually come off of a person. Absolutely. You, you just never know what you're going to find on the highway, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have actually found, you know, deceased bodies on the side of the road. And, you know, it's just a, a scary world that we live in, just to be real honest. And so... Um, anyway, uh, in December of 1989, uh, Warnos started killing men um, in South, you know, it was in Central Florida. So, uh, she was living in Daytona Beach, uh, but she hitchhiked along the highways, and that was all over Central and North Florida. Um, she was a prostitute, you know, that's what she did. She walked those highways. She was an exit-to-exit -exit hooker, is what she referred to herself as. Um, she claimed... That along the way that there were several men that had attempted to rape her, had successfully raped her. And so she had a vengeance in her heart for men. Uh, she had a clear hatred for the world. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. Now, December 13th of 1989, as far as a timeline that we could put together, was the first victim, Richard Mallory. Now, he was found dead in November of 1989, but this is the only case that Warnos actually stood trial for. The, the trial happened in DeLand, Florida. Exactly. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Richard Mallory. 
Um, he was a criminal himself. He actually um, served 10 years in prison for rape and actually for uh, threatening other women. Um, he was a 52-year-old owner of a Clearwater Electronics TV repair shop. Um, he had met with Eileen. Um, they had gone into a wooded area, according to Eileen, and actually spent about five hours drinking and smoking marijuana. Um, and she says, her, of course, her side of the story is that um, after a while, after five hours, she began to take off her clothing. And she asked him to take his clothing off. And he said no, that he was just going to unzip his pants. And then he told her, you know, I really don't even have the money to pay you for this. And, of course, that made Eileen furious. So, she reached to grab her clothes. And when she did, he took a rope and put it around her neck and put her into a chokehold. So, she said that he took the rope and eventually tied her hands up around the steering wheel. And he began to assault her. He raped her vaginally and he raped her anally. Repeatedly. She said that she was torn to pieces. She said that that had never been something that she had ever allowed her Johns to do was to have anal sex. So she said that that was something that she just felt, you know, repulsed by. Right. So this continued on for quite some time, the assault. And finally, he undid her hands from the steering wheel and he told her to lay down. And he told her, he said, I'm going to kill you, bitch, just like I have the other sluts. So, that's certainly not something that people typically say unless they've done this before. Yeah, I don't think he was just using that for a scare tactic. I think that was who Richard Mallory was. Yeah, I, I just can't uh, imagine, you know, the torture and the pain that she must have been going through. Um, she said later on the stand that he had a Visine bottle and in it was alcohol, pure alcohol. And he actually squirted the alcohol up her vaginal area, into her rectum, up her nose, and was threatening to put it in her eyes when she was able to grab her bag, which included the handgun, one that she had more than likely stolen across the time, and she shot him. And she shot him again. He fell he came back for her, and she shot him again. Two of those bullets actually pierced his lungs, and the other bullet was stray in the chest cavity, but the ones that pierced his lungs, he basically drowned to death in his own blood. Yeah, I believe the report that we read said that when the left lung was pierced, it caused massive hemorrhaging, and ultimately, that was what caused his death. Absolutely. So, she then goes ahead and takes his body into the woods. And she covers him up with the piece of carpet that she says that she found there. 
And so, several days later, a deputy in Volusia County found the abandoned car. Um, his body was actually found several miles away, buried in the, in the woods, like we mentioned earlier. So, there was so many things going on. Eileen had just had her first taste of blood. She was able now to take Richard Mallory's car, his possessions which included a camera. Um, there were some other things that she actually wound up pawning at a pawn shop using the alias Cammie Marsh. So, this was just the beginning. Now, from what we've pieced together, her very next victim after Richard Mallory was a man named David Spears. He was 43 years old. He was a Winter Garden construction worker. And he was found around June the 1st of 1990 along Highway 19 in Citrus County, Florida. Uh, he had been shot six times in the torso, and except for his baseball cap, he was completely nude. Gotcha. And that would be one of the things that we mentioned earlier. You know, some of the victims were nude. Um, Eileen actually wrote in her letters to Dawn that she would take the men's pants off. And she would turn them inside out, you know, looking for money or things that might be, you know, that they might have had hidden in their pants. So, one cannot just assume because their clothing was removed that they were actually participating in sexual activity with her. Um, simply, we can say some of the cases there were condoms found uh, that had been used. Um, that was not disclosed who they were specifically because, you know, they want to protect those families. Um, because basically, just like Jamie had said earlier, Richard Mallory is the only person that she went on trial for. So the other victims, she pled guilty to. And so she, you know, didn't have to stand trial. None of that information was brought forward and released. And some of the families are so adamant that their family member was only stopping to pick up someone who was broken down on the side of the road, uh, which was, you know, definitely something people do. I mean, there's been times that I've asked Jamie to stop, you know, to help somebody that looked like they needed help. And Jamie's like, you know, Alicia, we can't do that. That's not, in today's world, we, we can't do that. That's not safe for us or for, you know, them even. Eileen's next victim was Charles Karskadden. He was 40 years old, and he was a part-time rodeo worker. Um, he was from Pasco County. Uh, he was found June the 6th of 1990, and he had been shot nine times in his lower chest and upper abdomen. Um, Eileen later on told her friend Dawn that she thought that this man might have been related to someone who came into her life at an odd time. This person that came into her life, her name was Arlene Prowl. Arlene is a born-again Christian that said that she was at a shop one day during Eileen's trial. She looked up, her eyes met with Eileen, and God told her that she needed to go to be with her to help her to support her. She had seen her on TV in the shop, correct? Exactly. And so, she said that she felt that it was her Christian duty to go and help Eileen. That she felt like she was innocent. So, Eileen 
actually could only have family members to visit her in prison. So, in order for Arlene to be able to visit with Eileen, she had to adopt her. Jamie is looking at me crazy. You are thinking the same things I was thinking. A 35-year-old woman becomes legally adopted by another man and woman. Yeah, that's a little odd to me. I mean, why go through all that trouble? I understand the even the Christian need of feeling like you need to, you know, take up a cause and help someone that seems to need it. But it seems to be going a little far to adopt someone just to make sure that you can have contact with them. Exactly. That's what I thought. And later on, that would become a sore spot for Eileen. But she also went ahead and disclosed with Charles Karskadden that she actually thought that they might have been related. And that's why Arlene actually came into her life, was to get information. So, um, nobody's been able to confirm that Arlene was kin to any of Eileen's victims. Um, it was said, you know, a couple of different times and a couple of different interviews. But, again, you know, there was no proof for that. And even to his credit, even with Charles Carscadden, the fact that they were both said to have mob connections, both Arlene Prale and Charles Carscadden, uh, that has never been proven. Like, those were just rumors. Nobody knows whether they had any mob connections or whether they did not. So that's not anything we can confirm or deny. And that's been one of the biggest things that Jamie and I have had such a hard time with in this investigation was the um, information that is out there is so many uh, things that contradict themselves in her case. So when I was able to get my hands on her uh, unpublished, unfinished autobiography, I was fascinated with it. And I actually decided that I wanted to narrate it because I felt like that I could put her words, that I could make them come alive you know, for you and I, those that are interested in her case, because there's a lot of people that feel really bad for her because she started out so, so wrong. You know, was she treated fairly? That is, you know, been a big question. Now, as best as we can put together, the next victim on the timeline was Peter Seams. I hope I'm saying that last name right. He was 65 years old. His car was found on July the 4th of 1990, but his body was never found. Eileen says in a letter to her friend Debbie that she left his body in plain sight, right in the middle of the road. She later wrecked his car, leaving behind a palm print. She and Ty were seen in a neighboring backyard where the car accident happened, washing off blood with a garden hose. This is when the police were able to develop a composite sketch of both women from an eyewitness. Next, we have Troy Burris. He was 50 years old. He was a sausage salesman. He was from Marion County. By the time that they found him, his body was heavily decomposed. Um, he was found August the 4th of 1990, and he had been shot twice. Her next victim was Charles R. Humphreys. He was 56 years old. 
He was a retired Air Force major and a former Alabama police chief. He was found fully clothed, and she said that she shot him seven times just to put him out of his misery. She, he was shot six times in the head and in the torso. The final victim is Walter Gino Antonio. He is 62 years old. He was found November the 19th, 1990 in Dixie County. And he had been shot four times in the back and his head. And he was found to be nearly nude. We do want to note at this time that there was a lot of speculation that there possibly could have been more victims because around the time that all of these murders were occurring, there was about 10 to 12 men that fit that same profile of being shot with a 22 caliber gun pistol and their vehicle stolen or belongings missing. So they never went on and gave any more information as to was it Eileen that killed these men or not? So, what we want to do now is we want to get into the trial phase of this case. This is the saddest thing that I think I have ever encountered. To know that our legal system failed Eileen. And we're going to give you some details about what happened. And you decide for yourself. Whether you think she received what she deserved, which more than likely she did, but was it handled the right way? So, we're going to introduce you to some key players. First off would have been Trisha Jenkins. She was Eileen's public defender. Jenkins did feel that more Tyra, the girlfriend, was involved in these crimes, even though police set up a sting operation with Tyra to set up Eileen into confessing about the crimes. That is the clip that you heard early in this broadcast where Eileen was actually on a recorded line talking with Tyra. Tyra had FBI agents, police officers surrounding her in a hotel that they had put her up in where they fed her pizza and bought her cases of beer so that she would turn state's witness on Eileen. If that isn't love, then I don't know what it is. <laughs> Unfortunately, you and I both know that that's not what love is. No, it's so. not. And I kind of believe that Eileen felt like she knew what was happening because she asked Ty... A couple of times. Is there anyone in there with you? Yeah, she knew. Is she there had, someone in your room? Yeah, I think she she had been betrayed so many times at this point. She knew. She knew. So, I think the kicker was when Ty threatened to kill herself or to say, I don't know if I want to go on living. That's what sent Eileen into a frenzy because she loved her. She truly, truly loved her. But... Trisha Jenkins, the public defender, she did feel like Moore was covering up vital information that could possibly prove that she was actively involved in the murders, but the state decided they'd rather use her as a witness to convict Eileen than to charge Ty. 
Yeah, I don't think that the officers believe that Ty was as involved possibly in the murders, uh, probably an accessory to the fact, if anything, but the police wanted to pin everything on Eileen. Uh, we don't know whether Tyra actually had a hand in any of the murders or not. She didn't have a hand in the murders, but she knew that the murders were happening because the very evening that Richard Mallory was killed, Eileen went to Ty and told her, I just murdered someone today. These are the things that I have. They sat together and sorted the things out on things they would keep and things they would pawn. So she can't act like she didn't know or that she was, you know, kept in the dark yeah, she, about what she was, was going not on. Innocent. No, and she rode in the vehicles, you know, when the vehicle was wrecked from Peter Seams, they were both in that vehicle and from my understanding, Ty was the one driving. So she was aware and she was part of it. So but we're gonna go on and tell you a few more pieces of information about this case that are just stunning. <laughs> Brian Jarvis was a former Marion County Sheriff's deputy, and he said that he knew that evidence had been covered up because three fellow investigators had teamed up with Tyra Moore, once again, Tyra's name, for a movie deal. So, <laughs> we all knew that something was awry with Ty. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Brian even lost his job. He was demoted, lost his job, his house was broken into. Yeah, if I read correctly, uh, he believes that his fellow officers, other investigators, broke into his house and because... The only his house was broken into, but the only things taken were files, investigative files against Eileen and any evidence that would have tied Tyra Moore into the things that she was doing. All of those files that he had were taken, and that is all that was taken after his house was broken into. Yeah, and he was warned to keep quiet, to keep his mouth shut about what he knew. So. I applaud him for standing up and actually telling the truth. So, uh, we don't have that in a whole a whole lot of places anymore. No. So, uh, the next character we're going to introduce is Phyllis Chesler. Um, she is someone who came into Eileen's case early in the trial. She wanted to write a book about Eileen. Um, she is a hardcore feminist. She's also a psychologist. But she went to Eileen about writing her autobiography, and she actually is the person that did release the unfinished autobiography uh, for public view that I would like to narrate. Um, she, you know, she said, you know, we may be fascinated with her because something is going on with women nowadays. The Thelma and Louise, Anita Hill was popular at that time. And she was saying women don't want sexual harassment. So the point is that you have to consider and look at is when does prostitution and not wanting to provide services to someone, when does that become rape? When do women have the right to defend themselves? Well, some would say you're in that business, you're a prostitute. 
you are there to provide a sexual service. You can't just up and decide, no, you don't want to provide that service. Take their money. But in the same instance, rape is rape. Yeah, there's there's a fine line there. Unfortunately, everything's kind of gray, but you have to admit. I mean, I'm a man, and you have to admit you pay for services, you get those services that are specified, but not that I know a lot about prostitutes, but I know the guidelines are set before you ever meet. Um, if you take your car to a car wash, you know you're paying $5 for the regular wash, $8 for you know the Supreme wash where they buff and shine and put the wax on. Uh, you don't get everything for $5. You get what you get for $5. You get what you get for $8. Anything that you do outside of that was never part of the deal. It was never part of the contract. So once you start feeling like you're entitled to more just because you forked out some money, no, you, you're, you've gone too far. That, that was never part of the plan. Exactly. And that's what Eileen was saying. You know, she's like, this is not what we agree to. These are not, you know, the terms of our agreement. Just, you know, like you said, and, you know, we've all seen enough shows and we know that, you know, the, the prostitute leans into the car. What are you looking for? You know, hey, you know, I want this. Okay, $25, you know, whatever the service is, you know, the fee is. So, but anyway, Chesler goes on to say, Warnos is not leading a feminist liberation army by saying I was raped and I should not be charged or prosecuted because I was raped. But she herself could understand her actions most deeply in the feminist and political terms. And she did pose the question, what would it mean if women started to defend themselves? What would that mean? What would that look like in the eyes of the law? You know, you and I had a case that we looked at, and it was a gentleman that owned a shop. And that guy had been robbed four times. Four different occasions. During the course of those robberies, a total of five men were killed by the store owner. That store owner never received any charges. But in the end, he was offering the same services. I provide a service, this is what you're allowed to do, but once you start to take from me and not pay me or pay me as much as I'm supposed to, then I have to take it into my own hands. So I can kill you if you're robbing me, but I can't kill you if you're raping me. And that's kind of the way it reads. Exactly. And that's exactly that's how it the comes way. across. Yes, exactly. Um, I've already made reference to Dawn Botkins. She's actually Eileen's best friend from childhood. Um, she is the one that um, took all of the letters that Eileen wrote and she had them published. And it wasn't for money, for financial gain at all. Um, that's been another bad thing in this case is that everything was about money. Money, 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 money. From the very beginning, that's what drove every bit of this was the love of money. 
Everyone seemed to want to profit off of Eileen. Exactly. Her lover, the police officers, the journalists. Yeah, and she didn't know who was for her, for her to be, you know, for her, or who was for her for profit. And that's what turned this case so twisted and sour is like one person would be involved one day and then Eileen would kick them out. You know, because she found out that they were working with, you know, someone to produce a book or a movie or something along that line. Right. So, but anyway, Dawn is, um, like I said, she was Eileen's best friend from childhood. They did remain friends up until she died. Um, they did write the letters back and forth. Um, Eileen actually asked uh, Dawn to take her ashes when she was cremated. And so Dawn agreed to do this. And Eileen actually wanted her ashes spread out over a beach in Florida. And Dawn actually told her, no, I'm certainly not going to do that. You killed seven men. I am pretty certain that those families don't want your ashes on their beach. So, Dawn told her, I'm going to bring your ashes back, and I'm going to spread them out around a tree. It was a walnut tree. And I'm going to bring you somewhere where you're going to be with people that loved you. And to this day, that walnut tree remains there, and is still cared for by Dawn Botkins and her family. So, but we're going to go ahead and go into the trial phase of this and tell you a little bit more about that. We, the jury, find the defendant, Eileen Carroll Buenos, guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and first-degree felony murder of Richard Mallory. I was raped. I hope you get raped. Scumbags of America. Now, the notes that we have on the trial, uh, Eileen's defenders did not call a single expert to speak on her behalf. The jury did find Warnos guilty on all counts, including first-degree murder and armed robbery, and she was reported to have roared to the jurors, Sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. A penalty trial was held before the same jury to determine whether she should be sentenced to life, in prison or death. An expert psychologist, Dr. Bernard, testified that Eileen suffered from both borderline personality disorder as well as antisocial personality disorder. He stated that there was mitigating evidence such as mental problems, alcoholism, disturbance, and genetic or environmental deficits that should have played a role in her defense. The state called her aunt and uncle to stand up to testify that their father was someone to look up to, even though he was a stern disciplinarian. Her uncle Barry never saw any signs of physical abuse, he claimed, but he also left for the military when Eileen was only nine. And Jamie, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you just said, if that's okay. Yes. So, in a typical trial... You have your defense and you have your prosecution, and both sides have witnesses. So, you mean to tell me that there was no one that stood up on Eileen's side but herself? Correct. 
uh, it was brought up after the fact that there were people that would stand up and speak for Eileen, but I believe the judge said it was inadmissible because they waited too long to bring it up. It was too late to put it in to the trial. So, you know, the thing about it is, and you and I have had this discussion with about Richard Mallory, I really do believe that she fought him. I really do believe she fought him. Yeah, I believe, I mean, maybe not word for word, but I believe that pretty much everything that she said happened between her and Mallory actually happened. I think that was the turning point because, you know, Eileen Warnos had been, you know, for lack of a better term, hooking since pretty much childhood, preteen years. And she had never killed anybody, never said, I mean, not that she wasn't violent. She got pissed off at everybody. She had had a rough childhood. She was an angry person. But for all of those years, she never killed anybody. But I don't think she had ever run up against another character like Richard Mallory, who had already been in prison for being a rape and assault. Yeah. A lot of people said that... um, he was a pervert that that was the way that they described him that he was a pervert you know and so um there were people that wanted to come forth and actually speak for Eileen on you know that portion of the case that he was a he was a rapist you know the surprising thing is his crime was never even discussed during the trial never even brought up Not once, not mentioned. So, they there was a question of why wasn't that brought up? So, journalists actually posed that question to the defense team, and the defense team said that they didn't find anything when they ran a background check on Mallory. They said that was really odd because it took them all of about 15 minutes. For them to find his criminal record, which clearly indicated that he was in prison for 10 years for rape, sexual assault, and harassing other women. So you basically are the defense team for this woman, and you do nothing to show that she was worth anybody's time. Yeah, I don't want to say that her defense team was incompetent. Uh, I can't speak to their knowledge and or character, but it really just feels and seems like they didn't do anything. They didn't do due diligence. They didn't even do anything. The thing about it, in addition to that, is during the trial, you're not supposed to bring up other crimes that haven't been, you know, processed yet. They haven't been... You know, you haven't received any type of sentence for. They brought up the other murders that she had committed, even though they were not part of that trial. So the jury got to hear about how she had murdered other people, but did not hear about how Richard Mallory was a rapist. So, in addition to that, they bring in an 
expert psychologist who states she clearly has borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Also during the trial phase, Jamie, you mentioned that her uncle Barry um, was brought to testify. But guess what? He wasn't brought to testify for the defense. He was brought to testify for the prosecution. So against her. Against her. Her own family member was brought to testify against her, just as was her sister Lori, or her aunt, aunt sister Lori. The one that said that when it was time for them to pull the plug, pull the switch, that she wished she could be the one to do it. I'd love knowing that I had family like that. So, Barry gets up on the stand. Keep in mind, he left when she was nine years old. Went into the military. Was not exposed to Eileen. The grandfather, which was his father. None of them. So, he was gone. He was disconnected. So, he gets up on the stand and he testifies that there was never any abuse. That... His dad was an upstanding man. That he was stern. But Barry never saw anything. Well, Barry. She found out that the people that she thought were her parents were not her parents. After you had left and gone to the military. She began receiving beatings where she had to physically remove her pants lay spread eagle down on the bed. And this is something that has been supported by her friend Dawn, who was looking through the window one night when they got caught being late to come home. Immediately, Laurie grabbed Eileen, yanked her into the bedroom, pulled her pants down, laid her on the bed, forced her on the bed, and beat her. So, Barry, just because you didn't see it and you weren't there, doesn't mean it didn't happen. So, those are just a few of the things that have really irked me about the trial. So, another thing is, of course, we know that the jury did find her guilty on all counts. Her penalty trial started the next day. So, it was still fresh on the jury's mind of her saying, You sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped. Scumbags of America. And the way I just said it was putting it mild compared to how she said it. We have an audio clip of that available as well. So, the penalty trial was held. Same jury. To determine whether or not she should be sentenced to life or prison death. Of course, we know that the jury recommended the death sentence by a vote of 12 to nothing, concluding that five aggravating circumstances and only one mitigating factor, which were these, the five aggravating circumstances found were that Warnos had a previous felony conviction involving the use or threat of violence, murder was committed during the commission of a robbery, Murder was committed in order to avoid arrest. Murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel. The murder was cold, 
calculated, and premeditated. The trial went on to find that there was one mitigating factor, and that was that Eileen Warno suffered from borderline personality disorder. The jury believed that Warnos knew the difference between right and wrong. The judge came back with his commentary, and he found the following non-statutory mitigator, and that was that Warnos suffered antisocial and borderline personality disorders. She may have been physically abused as a child. Her natural grandfather and father had both committed suicide. Her grandmother had died, an alcoholic, and her mother had abandoned her as an infant. The judge agreed with the jury's recommendation of death and sentenced Warnos to the electric chair on January the 31st of 1992. Several different quotes have been released of Eileen and her interactions throughout time. And I'm just going to read a couple of those to you, just so that you can kind of hear what her thoughts were. So, in an interview with the Orlando Sentinel, Warnos tried to explain, I am not a man-hater, she said. I am so used to being treated like dirt that I guess it's just become a way of life. I'm a decent person. Later on, she would say, I had to kill them, she said, in a four-hour videotape confession to the police that was made public during the trial. It's like I'm thinking, you bastards, you were going to hurt me. It was self-defense. It was like, hey man, I'm going to shoot you because I think you're going to kill me. Later on, she was asked by a police officer, why did she kill? And she said, they crossed the line. They were going to rape me, kill me, or strangle me. In her statement to the court, she said, in part, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you. But these others did not. They only began to start to. We're following you. Yeah. Let's say they were following uh -huh. you and they did everything that you're, you're saying they did. Uh-huh. Nonetheless, yeah. you killed seven men. Yes, you did. And I'm asking you, what got you to kill the seven and men? And I'm telling you because the cops let me keep killing them, Nick. Don't yeah, you not, get it? Not everybody is killing seven people. So there must have been something in you that was getting you to oh, do Oh, you that. are lost, Nick. So I was a hitchhiking hooker. Right. Running into trouble, I'd shoot, shoot the guy if I ran into trouble. Physical trouble, the cops knew it. When the physical trouble came along, let, let her clean the streets. And then but, we'll pull her in. But That's how come why. There was so much I want to read to you guys a letter that was written by a prison activist. And it's about the Eileen Warnos case and her thoughts and some information that was not released during the trial. So, they start out the letter by saying that we believe Eileen acted in self-defense. At the time of the killings, Lee was working as a highway prostitute. All of the men she killed were men who picked her up and who, she says, violently attacked her. Lee was picked up by many other men during this period and she did not hurt them. Several men have testified that they've spent days or weeks with her and she never even threatened them. 
They did say that she was worried that they would attack her, though. Prostitutes are much more likely to be raped than women in other jobs. One study of a group of prostitutes said that they had been raped an average of 33 times a year. In the Seattle area, at least 65 prostitutes and strippers have been killed by the Green River murderer who's never been caught. New York police recently arrested Joel Rifkin, who confessed to the murders of 17 prostitutes. When they stopped Rifkin by chance, the cops were not even investigating the disappearances of these women. Very few murders of prostitutes are ever investigated or solved. They do not believe that Lee received a fair fair trial, nor do I. Lee has been tried only once for the killing of Richard Mallory, but has been convicted of six murders. In her videotape confession, which was the key evidence used by the prosecution in her trial, Lee said more than 60 times that she acted in self-defense. None of those references were ever included in the version of that tape, which was shown to the jury. The prosecution claimed that Mallory had no history of sexual violence, yet it was later revealed that Mallory had been convicted of attempted rape in Maryland and that he had threatened to harm other women. Evidence of these prior attacks was not even presented at the trial. The jury was allowed to hear evidence of crimes that Lee had not even been convicted of. They also believed that Lee was inadequately represented by counsel. Her trial attorneys first failed to interview and later failed to call several witnesses who had volunteered information which corroborated Lee's testimony. Her trial attorneys delayed in researching evidence of Mallory's history of violence against women. The judge then ruled it inadmissible because it was introduced too late. Who knew that evidence had a time limit? Private attorney Stephen Glosser encouraged her to plead no contest to five murder charges without securing a sentencing offer or informing her of all of her options. We also believe that officers were involved in investigating the case and that they behaved unethically. There is evidence that Volusia County Sheriff deputies negotiated contracts for books and movie deals about Lee's case before she was even arrested. Deputies arranged with Tyra Moore, Lee's former girlfriend, to set Lee up. Though Tyra was implicated in several of the killings, she was never charged. Officer Brian Jarvis, initially the chief investigator on the case, was removed from the case when he was questioned. The conduct of his colleagues, when he questioned the call, when he, excuse me guys, when he questioned the conduct of his colleagues on the case. I'm just getting so frustrated. (laughs) He later reported vandalism to his house, theft of his records on the case, and threats against him and his family. We do not believe that Eileen is a serial killer. According to the prosecution, portraying Lee as a serial killer is what won them the death penalty. Lee does not fit the profile of a serial killer. No serial killer has ever claimed that they killed in self-defense. Serial killers stalk their victims. They do not kill in moments of fear or passion. We do believe that sexism, anti-lesbian, and anti-prostitute prejudice were used to condemn Lee to death. Prosecutors made repeated references to Lee's romantic relationships with women. 80% of women on death row in Florida are lesbians. 
Though Lee does not consider herself a lesbian, society's fear and hatred of lesbians was used against her. People have trouble believing that a prostitute would need to kill six times in self-defense. Yet recently, a long a Los Angeles store owner killed five men in four different armed robbery attempts. This is the story we were telling about earlier. That man was never charged with any crime. Tens of thousands of women are in prison in the U.S. for killing men who abuse them. A study by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence found that men who kill their wives or girlfriends serve only an average of two to six years, while women who kill their partners, their male partners, serve an average of 15 years. Ted Bundy, who killed more than 30 women in Florida, had offers from several well-known private criminal attorneys to defend him pro bono, for free. At one time, his defense team included five public defenders and a voluntary consultant on jury selection. Lee's supporters have been unable to find any such assistance for her. She has had to rely on overworked public defenders. We demand equal justice for Eileen Warnos. Unfortunately, we do know that Eileen Warnos did not receive equal justice. She was sentenced to death. Ultimately, she would be killed by lethal injection. In January of 27 of 1992, Warnos was convicted of the murder of Richard Mallory. In April of 1992, Eileen pled guilty to the murders of Burris, Humphreys, and Spears. Warnos only stood trial once since she pled no contest or guilty to the subsequent murder charges. May the 7th, 1992, Eileen receives another death sentence. Eileen goes on to tell us a little bit about her time that she spent in prison. Now, Eileen Warnos had began accusing prison matrons of tainting her food with dirt, saliva, and urine. She said that she had overheard conversations among prison personnel, quote, trying to get me so pushed over the brink by them I'd wind up committing suicide before the execution. And she, go ahead, Jamie, I'm sorry. <laughs> and she also claimed that they were wishing to rape her before her execution. And that's sad. She also complained of non-required strip searches. And she was being handcuffed so tightly that her wrist bruised any time that she left her cell. They were just so rough with her. The guards at Broward Correctional Institution are the officers that she's referring to. There were a total of eight of them. They released their own statement. Their representative did. And it said, Our guards at Broward, who work on the wing where she is being housed, have not been exhibiting this type of behavior. And the Department of Corrections will firmly deny any of these allegations. Now, Warnos accused the prison staff of waging psychological and physical warfare against her and wants the eight officers to be transferred until my ex, 
her shorthand for execution. She also wants the old staff returned. She listed 17 complaints, and the 11th complaint that she wrote in, it said she is used to overhearing conversations and trying to get me so pushed over the brink by them I'd wind up committing suicide before the ex. The issue of suicide was a real concern because her father hanged himself in prison and grandfather committed suicide. Grandfather committed suicide via carbon monoxide poisoning. Warnos also reported overhearing staff conversations. They were wishing to rape me before my execution and on the way to Stark in transport or at Stark itself. Death row inmates are executed at Florida State Prison near Stark. At one time, Eileen did spend six months in solitary confinement. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to bring in our professional clinical counselor, Jennifer Fugate. Um, she is actually the owner of the Lighthouse Counselor Consulting and Supervision uh, Company, and she is actually going to help us to provide some psychological um, standpoint on Eileen Warnos. Uh, definitely helps to have someone who's educated in this field that can work with us as we uh, try to figure out where things went wrong for her. Um, welcome to the podcast jennifer thank you <laughs> we're so glad to have you with us um thanks for having me we actually um were talking earlier in the podcast about trying to figure out what type of um serial killer eileen can be categorized uh, from my experience and what i've done thus far um i feel like she falls into two different categories uh one a power control category and the second a hedonistic killer um, I feel like she was motivated by power and dominance. Um, definitely her gain was to have absolute control over victims. Um, and I really, truly, honestly felt like her gain of material things was what drove her. What's your opinion? I think that that's a pretty accurate understanding of her. Um, she definitely um, had had some tragedy in her life and um, had, had felt powerless uh, and out of control of her own life. Um, and this desire for power and control was certainly there. Um, and she also needed money in order to survive. Um, and we'll talk a little later on, I'm sure, about um, her financial her financial stability just was not there. She didn't have much of it. She didn't have a lot of marketable skills. All right. Right. Well, she definitely, um, you know, when we were discussing her education earlier, um, we mentioned that she dropped out of school in the ninth grade. You know, that's at the very, very beginning of learning lots of pivotal skills, you know, for your future life. Right. So, when uh, you think about also, when you look at her background um, and all the things that she was going through during the time that she was going to school, um, you know, you look at somebody that's dropped out of school in ninth grade and experienced the level of traumas that she had, unstable home, parents out of the home, all of these things combined together, I would be willing to wager that she um, she wasn't a star student uh, to begin with. So when she dropped out in, in ninth grade, I would 
estimate that her her cognitive ability was right around sixth or seventh grade. Right, right. I can definitely see that, especially um, I have been able to have access to the letters that she wrote to her friend Dawn. Um, and she clearly, uh, in these writings, they did not alter the way that she spelled things or the way that she grouped words together. So there's definitely some a lack of education, you know, in her writing. She did the best she could, you know, but just like you said, she had so many factors that were already set against her. So um, one of the things that interests me, uh, Jennifer, is I want to find out from your perspective, someone who has encountered the things that she has encountered, do you feel like that set her up to become a serial killer? Like, what is the variation between someone not becoming a serial killer versus someone becoming a serial killer? We certainly have a lot of people that, that lead tragic lives the way that Eileen did, and, and they didn't become serial killers. Um, but one of the one of the major things that that I look at when I am uh, when I look at her is that it, we don't see that anybody ever really intervened for her, um, and she had trauma after trauma after trauma with no real intervention. This is a phenomenon that we call uh, complex trauma. This is a complex trauma theory is. Uh, recognized by the International Classification of Diseases, but it's not yet in our DSM. Um, I think that that will eventually change um, at some point in the future. But um, when you look at somebody like Eileen who had so many traumas, they do not have, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I just got distracted by my crazy little dog. I'm That's sorry. okay. My cats are over here doing some kind of cartwheels. So I'm sure our listeners are enjoying knowing that we're sitting in our homes trying to <laughs> trying to put this podcast together with our animals right, acting crazy. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I was talking about complex trauma theory, and, and only 7 to 8% of the, popula- of the population experiences this. So Eileen um, experienced all of these traumas. She experienced childhood neglect. She experienced abuse in early life. She experienced witnessing domestic abuse and human trafficking. Um, even though we, you and I talked um, offline about, you know, the human trafficking was was by her own choice. Um, it's still human trafficking is human trafficking, and it's demoralizing. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime a person has to sell themselves. It's very demoralizing. Right. It's probably all that she felt like she had to offer. Right. right. You know, because from an age of nine, it's reported that she was performing sexual acts with other people in, you know, the other boys in her town for cigarettes or loose change or, you know, things like that. At nine years old, that is absolutely not something that the typical nine-year-old is even considering or thinking about. Right. So... We, we talk about the building of a serial killer um, sometimes. And, um, again, you know, she always had the power to choose. She always had the power to choose, you know, asking for help. Um, but, she, again, she didn't have anybody that she could trust. But one of the things that I, that I find fascinating about trauma is that there is a biological component of trauma. Every time that a trauma is experienced, there is a change in the brain. There is a physiological 
noticeable change in the brain. And where we have had the opportunity to have MRIs of brains or brain scans prior to trauma and then after trauma, we definitely notice that there are some changes in the brain, in the amygdala and the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. Um, And these are the regions of the brain that deal with emotion, memory, and reasoning. Um, and we see that Eileen had deficits in all of those areas um, in her ability to process emotion, her memory, and then her cognitive reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, somebody might be tempted to say, well, anybody in their right mind uh, would not have killed these people. Well, you know, she wasn't in her right mind. Clearly not. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. She was a she was a very brain injured individual. Mm-hmm. Um we, we have noticed, we have noted in, in the records that Eileen uh, went to some kind of mental health provider uh, in her childhood and was prescribed some tranquilizers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was in the middle school, I believe. Right, some part of the, you know, her, her development. Uh, we don't know what that did to her brain then either. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for... Um, five years as a child therapist and one of the things our our clinical approach with children who had um, emotional cognitive processing attention deficit those those types of problems we were very conservative in our approach to prescribing medications because you're growing a brain Mm-hmm. And anytime you're growing a brain and introducing chemicals into that process, you're changing the chemical, mate. You're changing the development of that brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have documented that that Eileen uh, was experimenting with substances. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, early alcohol use, marijuana use, other drug use. Yeah, she noted in her letters to Dawn that her and Dawn frequently um, smoked LSD together. Right. So all of these, all of these factors together, you know, it, it definitely had an impact on her brain um, and her ability to think. So um, when she when she took that desperate move uh, to commit her first murder, um, you know, she was a very desperate and brain injured individual. Um, I often wish that someone had been able to encounter Eileen at, at nine or 10 years old. I mm-hmm. think that the result would have been totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, at nine or 10 years old, you can certainly heal uh, from the types of traumas that she's experienced. Our brain has neuroplasticity, um, the ability to heal itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with therapy and changing the environment, the brain can the brain can change itself back uh, to be a normal functioning brain. I would love to see a brain scan of Eileen's. Yeah, that would be interesting. It would be fascinating. fascinating. So what you're talking about is kind of like if she had had the opportunity to have some counseling or some intervention, she could have had like physical therapy for the brain. Right, right. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Some of the things that I've noted um, in characteristics of a serial killer, um, just a few of them, um, they're egocentric and grandiose, uh, lack of remorse or guilt, uh, lack of empathy, deceitful and manipulative 
shallow emotions, impulsive, poor behavior controls, and need I go on. Um, she seemed like, um, I think the biggest thing for me, Jennifer, that I noticed with her, and it probably has to do with something um, that hopefully we can talk with you about a little bit more, is the borderline personality disorder. Uh, the ability for her to just uh, shift her emotions like in a second, you know, um, I don't know how many of, uh, um, of our listeners have actually watched any of her videos or um, her interviews, but she can shift her emotions like instantly. Um, would you right. say that that probably had to do with her uh, diagnosis of borderline personality disorder? Absolutely. And one of the things that, that one of the strengths of people who have uh, borderline personality disorder is that they're able to uh, they're able to read a room um, and see what they need to do in order to manipulate the situation to get what they need mm -hmm. to get their needs met. If they need attention, they know how to change the environment of the room. They know how to act in order to get the reaction. Um, and they're always craving that reaction from other people. They need that in order to thrive. Mm -hmm. Do you, in your studies of Eileen, do you see any other borderline personality disorder characteristics that stand out to you? As far as characteristics, um, she, she had uh, difficulty with their, her interpersonal relationships. Um, there have been... Uh, we talked about her relationship with Tyra mm -hmm. and how she was almost instantly in love with mm -hmm. Tyra. Mm -hmm. That That is um, uh, one of the characteristics of a person with borderline personality mm -hmm. disorder is that they uh, they latch on quickly mm -hmm. in relationships. Yeah, we uh, actually saw that too in um, her marriage with Lewis Fell. Um, she had just traveled to Florida, just met him, you know, um, he owned a yacht club and he was 69 years old, you know, and she was 20 and he was just mesmerized by her beauty because at that time, you know, the results of, uh, the wear and tear of prostituting and living the life like she did had not began to take effect. She was quite beautiful. Um, and so they were married for 60 days and then divorced, um, because she, uh, he, he refused to give her any more money, you know, and so she flipped out and beat him with his own cane, with his own walking cane, you know, and so just that quick relationship, it's here, it's over, you know? Right. Right. Fast burning, but not long lasting. Right. But she was in love, you know, to hear her tell it, you know, she was in love and she often refers to even Tyra as the love of her life, you know, and to know that, if I were in that situation and someone that I refer to as the love of my life actually turned state's witness on me for a case of beer and some cigarettes, mm -hmm. um, I think I'd really have to reevaluate my my choices of who the loves of my life are. <laughs> right. So, um, one of the other things that um, several other psychologists and psychiatrists have said, you know, they definitely feel that the case is very complex. Um, but one of the other things that they mentioned is that the she possibly had antisocial personality disorder. Um, now, I yes. know from my own experience that in the past was known as psychopathy. Is that correct? Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Um, so a person with antisocial personality disorder, um, they they have a tendency to not uh, be able to tell the truth. Um, they they lie frequently. They act out violently. Um, they don't show any remorse for their actions. Um, anti being against, social being people. Um, she. A person with antisocial personality disorder is um, not able to feel to the same extent that another person would. And I'm not I'm not making the case today to feel sorry for Eileen Warnos. She certainly made her choices and mm-hmm. and and ultimately paid for her crimes. I do want us to think about though what made her that way. Mm-hmm. What what built that in her? And you know she had. She had no remorse. She gave no remorse to her victims. Um, so, um, I wonder yeah. with with her if if it didn't honestly, you know, the whole concept of nature versus nurture mm-hmm. uh, with her that one's clear. You know, she right. is the child. Whether she, I don't know if how much you know of the story or not, but. Um, her supposed father was Leo Pittman. Um, Leo was actually um, in prison when Eileen was born because he was uh, convicted of the rape and murder, kidnapping, rape, and murder of a seven-year-old. Um, he eventually, of course, there's much confusion about this, what happened, and we all know how that goes in jails. He either hung himself or he was strangled. So, you know, at that time, and we know how it is in today's prison society, if somebody finds out that you have sexually abused a child, they're more than willing, you know, to terminate you, you know, so the other, you know, inmates. So, um, but then the other story is that it's possible that her grandfather was actually her father. So there's some very serious issues going on mentally, physically, biologically, right from the beginning. There were a lot of, of dynamics that played that played a role. One of the, the, the things that I was getting to, and I'm sorry, I got a little distracted there. You're um, fine. <laughs> with, with her showing no remorse to her victims, a person has to have felt something um, before they're able to give it to someone else. Mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody in her life ever really gave her empathy. I don't know that anyone ever said, Eileen, you're, you've really had you've really had a tough life. Let me help you out here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that she was ever shown that empathy. And if she was shown that empathy, uh, I don't know that she would have trusted it mm-hmm. uh, because she had had so many people in her life that let her down. Yeah. We heard one story. We were listening to an interview, and it was about a boyfriend. He was actually her boyfriend, a teenage boyfriend. And so the conversation, and I would have been ashamed of myself to admit it, this gentleman, he said, yeah, she was my girlfriend, but that was only when we were behind closed doors. Uh, When we were in public, I would throw rocks at her, you know, and she'd be like, why are you doing that to me? Or why won't you hold my hand? And he would spit at her or kick dirt at her and things like that. So clearly she never had acceptance from anyone, honestly. And I think the only person that she ever felt true love from, and I'm going to get a lot of backlash from this and I understand it, um, is from her brother, Keith. You know, Keith was two years older than her, a little close to two years older than her, 
but they themselves were reported to have had a sexual relationship that was consensual. So right. there was, and in the in the environment that they were living in, you know, again, you know, it's it's important to not criticize another person's choices until you until you look at you know what they had to choose between. Eileen mm-hmm. um, and her brother, they were living in the same environment, um, and that there's that shared trauma. Um, for one another and you know even though they were brother and sister they had that mutual 100% understanding of one another and they 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 were both um very unhealthy individuals Mm -hmm. um and often when two unhealthy individuals um suffer through something like that together they they lean on each other Mm -hmm. um it's kind of like you know they I'm sure that at some point or another, they felt like that they were on a desert island. You know, they were, um, there were certainly other people around them, but nobody understood um, or could understand what they were going through Mm -hmm. besides each other. Right. Um, Another um, aspect of this case that psychologists, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists have mentioned is that she possibly, clearly, um, she did suffer from abandonment complex. How do you think that played a role? Well, you know, uh, the abandonment complex, the the reason that it's so impactful um, is that, you know, she didn't have any secure attachments. Um, And when you don't have secure attachments, again, that empathy and ability to care for another person and think outside yourself does not get developed. So certainly she had some issues with, um, with attachment disorder. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, how do you feel, and this is just, you know, a personal opinion, you know, because I've gone back and forth just trying to think about it. The very first victim was Richard Mallory. And of course, um, he was the man that had been in prison for 10 years prior for sexual abuse, uh, rape and harassment of other women. Um, her original claim was that he had attempted to rape her, actually did rape her. And so, um, in my mind, I kind of think to myself that that was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back for her. She had enough. Right. I've I read that account as well. And if it truly was as brutal um, as she described that it was, and, and I, you know, I don't, I don't doubt that it was. Um, that was a very, the, the first person that she killed was a very demented individual, um, certainly capable of everything that she said and more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it certainly would have been an intense enough trauma that she would have, um, using the colloquial term, she would have certainly had reason to snap. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when a person is backed into a corner, uh, we have those reactions, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, flight was not an option for her. Uh, breezing, if she if she had just stayed stuck where she was mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of accepted her fate, she may have died. Right. Um, but, she, but she chose to fight him back. And then when she was able to get her power back, you know, knowing her history... I think that that was validating for her mm-hmm. um, in its in its own demented way. Mm-hmm. You know, she was able to she was able to become empowered where she had never been empowered before. How many people had ever 
had seen any value in Eileen and how, how had she ever conceptualized herself as having had value. Um, and I think that that's that power, that, that rush of being able to, you know, I'm standing up for myself and I'm getting my power back and I'm stopping this vicious attack on me and I'm stopping it right now. While I don't justify it, I understand that that must that must have been a very powerful moment for right. her. Right, it was kind of like her high. That's how she would get high. Right. Is right. That was her. That was her moment of, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this anymore. And mm-hmm. you know, we've seen this before, um, and we've even we've even glorified women um, who, and we've understood women um, to some point to some extent. We've glorified them. Battered women syndrome is a real defense in mm-hmm. criminal courts. Right. Um, and, you know, a woman gets to the point where she's taken enough and she finally stands up against her abuser and, you know, she terminates his life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have we have been compassionate to those women in those circumstances. And, you know, this the first killing that that Eileen uh was involved in uh was there had there were a lot of parallels Mm -hmm. uh, you know at least in the narrative right well that was one thing that um you know that that really shook me about the whole case is that you know like you said we have mentioned in the past about there's been cases of the battered one woman syndrome and you know um, whenever those women are put on trial and things like that there's like tons and tons of media coverage and people just rushing to be a part of that case you know because you know thank god she finally stood up for herself you know and so it makes you look at this situation and go did she not receive that same you know reaction because she was a prostitute you know was it because she chose to be a prostitute correct and you know i don't i don't know I, i don't know what the difference was but i wonder you know, Eileen didn't stop killing with the one guy. Exactly. You know, she, she, she kept on killing. And I think that that's the, that's the difference um, with, you know, the, the help not being there. Right. Um, I think that if, if, if she had killed that one man um, and had gotten help, somebody had intervened, she had gotten caught, I think that we would be looking at this case a whole lot differently. Yeah. When she killed six more people, mm-hmm. and one of them was an off-duty police officer, mm-hmm. that that changes the game. Yeah, that, that changes the way that changes the way we look at her. Yeah, very much so. Um, I read actually in one of her letters to her friend Dawn, uh, she was talking about the um, off-duty uh, police officer. Um, this one, he was a. Um, let me think of what they called him. He had a job, but he was like a, a police officer that would come in if there was a lack of police officers available. I'm trying to think of what they what they call that. But reserve, reserve yes, officer. that's it. That's it. A reserve officer. And she said, now I don't want anybody to complicate and confuse the two people because there was a gentleman that was a retired police officer and retired um Air Force Major, not the same guy. This was the guy that um, I believe he may have been the one to drive the sausage truck. It was it was one of those um, toward the end. But he, um, she said that he 
threatened her and told her, you know, you either do this or I'm going to arrest you. You know, mm-hmm. and so she said that she, you know, wasn't going to wasn't going to handle it that way. She wasn't she wasn't going to take it. You know, and so she's like he put the billy club up, you know, next to me and was going to tase me and she said I just went off. You know, and so she, she was in that position and she was in a bad position and she reacted, you know, but it, it was just so sad though, Jennifer, to see the trial, uh, mm-hmm. to know that she had no one that even came to her defense, but that was because her attorneys didn't call them. It's not that she didn't have witnesses that were going to stand up for her. It's that her own defense didn't call the witnesses. And finally, when the witnesses were brought to the judge's attention, he said it was too late to add it into the trial process. So she received death penalty. You know, and I know that you probably participating in court quite a bit with your position that you're in. You know, she, they never even mentioned Richard Mallory's past, his criminal history. But they did mention that she is possibly going to be convicted of two more murders. They brought that into the trial. It hadn't happened yet. And from my understanding, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to bring in information, you know, like that from other cases that haven't been resolved or set for trial. Right. So, yeah. I think that the, I don't know if the Innocence Project or um, if, if another group like that um, I think that there are certainly some brilliant legal minds that would have loved to have taken uh, the system to task mm-hmm. uh, for the way that they handled the Eileen Warner's case. I agree. I you know, I can't speak to that because that's not my area of expertise. Right. right. I, I've watched enough court TV to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Jennifer, you have just been such a wonderful part of this podcast, and we appreciate you so much, and we hope to be able to talk to you in future podcasts. But Absolutely. thank you so Glad much. Glad to help you out. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you. Guys, I wanted to take a moment just to thank you all for staying with us through this really, really long episode. This, um, I don't know, a lot of people might like longer podcasts, some may not. I don't know if this is going to be something that we're going to continue to do. The thing about it is, is that I always want to make sure that I give you the details. Um, I'm not someone who wants to just come and give you the overview and leave you with questions. I want you to have the answers that you're probably asking as the podcast is going on. So I wanted to say thank you very much. Um, I want to go ahead and end the podcast today. And I just want to, again, say thank you. And for us to just keep doing what we're doing and keep studying these cases and keep trying to make our system better. And I hope that you are blessed and that you stay safe. Lots of love from the No She Didn't podcast.